there, and welcome to another episode of Fuzz on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Hello! And, well, an article on the BFI website, well, I say article, it's more of a list really, is our inspiration for this episode. Well, I say inspiration, but really, is our episode. (laughs) Said article listed six films that deal with masculinity in some form, occasionally along with chauvinism and patriarchy, but that were made by female directors. And, as we'd only seen one of the six, or in Scott's case thought we had, we thought it might be interesting. We'll begin in the era of classic film noir, with a film directed by a woman so relatively alone in her field that meetings of the Directors Guild of America would be brought to order by saying, Welcome, gentlemen, and Miss Lupino. <laughs> Move on to a director doing something for the first time in six decades. Consider just having to kill a lot of people as a Canadian takes on American materialism. And spend a good chunk of time in France, where female directors have been more successful at making their mark over the years. And, hopefully along the way, we'll find something interesting to say about it all. And, with any luck, inspire to check out at least some of the titles. So, Scott, unless you have anything to say? No. No, there's a few... There's a few films in this list where I, I kind of question it actually being about masculinity as described by the BFI, but um, we'll deal with that when we get to them, I suppose. Uh, yes, I'm glad that's not just me. Yes. But, um, the, it, like, it's all in there. It all affects some of the characters, but I, don't, I wouldn't say it's about masculinity, but we'll, again, we'll, we'll get to that when we come to it. Yes, okay, so let, let's begin with a film that definitely meets the, the qualifiers of masculinity in that in the, the, other than a child, there are no women. <laughs> so it definitely um, fits the bill that way. Yes, but is it more masculine? It's got the Hitchhiker. Yes, we're starting things off in 1953 with, as mentioned, I Lupino's The Hitchhiker, which is about, and this will shock you, a hitchhiker. Uh, William Tellman's Emmett Myers is rampaging his way across the southwest of North America, murdering and stealing from those unfortunate enough to stop and pick him up. His latest victims are two American fishermen who travel down to Baja, California, for a holiday that's about to go very sour. Edmund O'Brien's Roy Collins and Frank Lovejoy's Gilbert Bowen soon find themselves on the wrong end of Meyer's revolver, forced to drive him back to the USA while staying one step ahead of the law, which has started a manhunt on both sides of the border. Narratively, I don't think there's all that much else to tell you about that shaker. It sets up its premise quickly and efficiently and gets on with showing the effects of the stressful situation on Collins and Bowen, who understandably grow increasingly frayed over the course of the piece, with the ever-present threat of imminent death from the unstable Meyer's looming over them. Just as well as sufficient, uh, 70 minutes is not a great deal of time to do anything with, let alone show the effects of the psychological nightmare, which, uh, while also interspersing enough of the, to be honest, perfunctory look at the police chase to give a bit of time pressure to proceedings. But it works pretty well, with O'Brien and Lovejoy getting quite convincingly, increasingly rattled as the tension increases. I'm not quite so convinced by William Talman's turn, although that's perhaps more due to lack of material to do much with, I don't need or want any further character motivation or development from him, but he's still played a little bit too close to a moustache-twirling villain for a movie that's otherwise doing a pretty good job of having believable actions and reactions. So, that said, it's a taut crime drama that doesn't outstay its welcome, and while it's not life-changing cinema, it's an enjoyable 70 minutes that's worth catching up with. Have you not seen it already? Uh, yeah, what'd you make of it, then? I quite enjoyed it. I did appreciate that it was only 70 minutes, actually. It was, just, it was really efficient. Yeah. Uh, although... 
in something you only hear from us very, very rarely. It perhaps could have stood maybe another 10 minutes just to increase the tension in a few scenes. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, spoilers, this is probably the first podcast in three years where we're not going to say this film was too long. Um, none of them are particularly long. For, for any of them. Yeah. Um, our longest film is two hours, and that's... Mm-hmm. Um, the rest are all about 90 minutes or yeah. thereabouts. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I do agree to degree with your points about William Tolman. I don't think he's that great a villain. I've seen worse. Um, and he's recently affected and his makeup, the that's a convincing fake eye. Yeah, yeah. Even in high definition. Yes. <laughs> um, a fake eyelid. But I don't know. Just, I didn't find him particularly threatening. He felt like he should have been more in a, a Western or something. So maybe going back to your point about him being moustache twirling. Yeah. Because I was watching this and thinking, I, I don't know if perhaps it's the time or not, but I just wanted him to have that kind of edge, like very different character, of course, but the kind of unpredictability of, say, Forrest Whitaker's Idi Amin in The Last King of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. That you're always kind of dancing around the guy because you think you feel like you could always just go off any minute. Yeah. And I didn't really get that kind of vibe from him. He's clearly a threat, but I didn't find him particularly frightening. But the film has its moments, and when, like, for instance, the scene when they're at the the well in the middle of the desert, and you're thinking, yeah, something happens yeah. there. Nobody's ever going to know. Yeah, probably nobody's been at that well for twenty years. You know, and so there are bits that actually just to do with the setting and the locations they're in, I think they're actually a great deal more threat a lot of the time than Emmett Myers himself. Yeah. Because all they need is something to go wrong and they die. And because they're going through the middle of the desert with the damaged cars and stuff. So yeah. there's definitely threat comes from that. The actual villain himself, not great, not bad, but not great. Yeah, and there's definitely a couple of scenes like that one at the well you mentioned. There's a few others that's more of a... Whether basically it's where Gilbert and Roy are trying to debate whether they should be taking on this guy, whether they can get the drop of him, and these kind of things, which I guess is why it's showed up in this uh, list uh, because it is there do seem to be moments where they're kind of one of them is geeing the other one up to kind of man up almost and take the other guy on, despite it being not a particularly great idea to do it. Mm. Um, and uh, maybe that's partly why it's on there the kind of uh, machismo of you know having to submit yourself to someone else's um, threats. And those scenes work really well. There's only two or three of them, maybe, uh, in it. It could have done with more of that, I think, and perhaps a bit better spaced out uh, to really kind of drive it home. Um, a lot of the things where it's... A lot of the, the scenes where they're going through the police's efforts to kind of track him down and trick him and by giving fake radio broadcasts and things like that are kind of... Uh, a bit shoddy. Um, they're kind of perfunctory, I think, at best. They're, they're not particularly well handled, and some of the actors using them are not the best either. Um, whereas um, Edmund O'Brien and Frank Lovejoy, I think, do really well. They're really quite convincing as the kind of characters, as they kind of devolve as things go along and get increasingly more frayed. Um, that part of it works very well and is you know, almost contemporary in, in how we treat that. I think that's that's aged very well. Um, a lot of the things around it perhaps haven't, which is really the only sort of slight knock against it. But yeah, I, I think overall for a film that's knocking on for uh, well, 70 years old at this point is you know, doing pretty well. Yeah, And as to the police, 
I quite like that they're at least competent. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is, especially given how Mexicans tend to be viewed. Yes. In the United States in the mid 20th century. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's good. My usual kind of nitpicking is wondering why there was a Mexico City police car in the middle of Baja, California, but uh, maybe that's just what they could get their hands on. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, um, so yeah, I appreciate like the competence of the police there, but there are, and I suppose modern films are not immune to it, but there are certain kind of tropes in there which kind of really stuck out to me. Like the one, like he's trying to follow the pursuit on the radio and like oh it's very very convenient isn't it that um the bit that of the news he needs to listen to is on the radio right when he turns on it turns <laughs> <Yes>. it on <laughs> oh that's handy yes <laughs> i don't mean this film is by no means unique in that regard at all i say certainly modern films can do that same sort of thing too but it just it seems so convenient and it, it kind of that kind of thing does take me out of a film a bit yeah uh the other thing is like i don't know Film noir is generally, well, not at least often, quite a quite a claustrophobic setting. Whereas this is set in the middle of a desert, which is so open. I think that's quite successful, actually, because you have, you get the claustrophobic feeling of the three of them in the car together. But then at the same time, there's this absolute isolation caused by the desert, which is like there's an yeah. exterior threat and an interior threat. Yeah, yeah. Which I quite liked about it. But yeah, it's, it's an efficient wee film. It's... It's not quite as good as I was hoping for, unfortunately. I'd kind of built my expectations of this quite a bit through for various reasons, but uh, it's still pretty solid. And I guess um, to keep with the theme of our episode, the, the masculinity more is like, yeah, that you can't give in and you have to, I guess if it was British, you would say stiff upper lip. Yeah. That sort of thing. And that these are former soldiers and like they're, they're buddies from the war and they're trying to protect each other and that sort of thing. Yes, but it's not the best start to this list. It was meant to be about masculinity when the first film's not... It's a masculine film, but it's not that much about masculinity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, just to give things away, you know, Scott already did it earlier, but we thought this list was a really interesting idea, but the, it, it's not a particularly good list in terms of what it claimed to be about. Yes. Um, spoilers, I don't think there's any film on here I didn't like. And so uh, it's a, fil- a list of films I will be recommending, but not necessarily for the reasons they were recommended to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, will we move on? Yes. To, well, actually, the the one film I guess I didn't like. <laughs> 1982's Losing Ground is important simply by existing, being the first feature-length drama to be directed by a black American woman, Kathleen Collins in this case, since the 1920s. And if that wasn't an egregious enough length of time, the film itself was largely ignored until the director's daughter restored it in 2015 and it gained interest in academic and critical circles. The partly autobiographical film is a slice of life of a philosophy professor, Sarah, Sarette Scott, and her artist husband Victor, played by Bill Gunn. Despite being a successful academic and an educator, the film's opening sees Sarah being regarded and measured by many of her students and even her own mother in relation to her husband. Victor has just had one of his landscapes bought by a museum, and this legitimacy prompts him to explore other aspects of his art. To this end, he wants to spend the summer upstate in a rented home to use as a studio. Though Sarah is quite reluctant that she wants to stay in New York to work on her thesis about religious ecstasy. Following his muse, 
there's a good euphemism. <laughs> Victor becomes interested in the largely Puerto Rican female inhabitants of the town, distancing himself from Sarah and eventually driving her back to the city, where she decides to take up the offer of one of her former students to act in his art film. This leads her, eventually, to cheer on Victor, physically and emotionally, while he's doing the same to her, though each unknown to the other. And, well, things don't begin promisingly, with a horrible saxophone score suggesting insipid 80s sitcom or daytime drama. Of the many cultural crimes of the 80s, the preponderance of the saxophone may be at the very top of the charge sheet. <laughs> Before cutting to a wide-eyed reaction shot right out of a comedy sketch from one of the students in Sarah's class. Sarah, by the way, is dressed in the most ridiculously over-the-top, old academic woman garb you can imagine. In an attempt to make the transformation into the sexy dancer she portrays in her student's film in the latter part seem more pronounced. It's so on the nose and so (laughs) ham-fisted that the only things missing are a chain for the overly large glasses she wears and her arrival in the film set in a pair of leather trousers to the beats of You're the One That I Want. (laughs) Victor's decision about where the couple will spend their summer certainly demonstrates his arrogance and general belief that his work takes precedence and that Sarah's, because she's a woman, is of secondary importance. But his lack of consideration for the paucity of libraries in the vicinity of the rental home simply is not the monstrously selfish act the film relies on it being. The thing about books is that they're remarkably portable and, well, most libraries let you take out more than one at a time. Bit of a non-issue to be a central part of your film. Much of this is compounded by a cast of variable quality, with only Bill Gunn and Dwayne Jones really feeling like accomplished performers. While your mileage may vary, I found Sarette Scott to be rather poor, though much of the rest are put down to budget and perhaps a smaller available talent pool. Dwayne Jones does first appear in a hat and cape though, and this is clearly awesome, (laughs) and ameliorates some of the other pain points. Those shortcomings really frustrate me, as there absolutely is solid material in there. While not electrifying, the dialogue is very natural and believable, with the real veracity too, for example, the niggly little bars traded between Sarah and Victor. Victor's belief in the primacy of his own career and his resentment at Sarah's intrusion into art, his field, is also something that's been played out in thousands of real relationships. This may even have been an important film too, showing as it does a representation of black middle-class intelligentsia, had it been seen. But it wasn't seen, meaning that its post-2015 rebirth renders it merely a curiosity, and unfortunately, losing ground is just too dull and unremarkable for me to care about, and I really, really struggle to see where the rave reviewers are coming from. I didn't mind losing ground. Um, it is not... I don't really disagree with a lot of what you're saying. There's, it's, I think I've seen much worse films not get a wide distribution that means that this feels wrong, that it's just been... I mean, what, it, it sat on a shelf. I don't think it even got distribution back when it was made in the 80s. And it, no, it, it just it, got... A couple of like just festival screenings of that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it never got picked up for this. Now, yeah, I, I don't really disagree with a lot of what you're saying there. Um, uh, it's a shame that, um, that Sarah's character, uh, Sarah Scott's not 
better. Um, I don't think she's really bad, but given that her character is, of course, the whole point of the film, um, some of it doesn't get its point across quite as well as it should have done. In terms of all of its messaging and what it goes on to, the kind of the struggles of uh, taking a, a kind of feminist approach to how women's work is treated and all that kind of stuff, uh, I think its messaging is always sound and on point, and I don't have any concerns with that. I think it's just unfortunately that some of the ways that it's done seem a bit not quite amateurish, but it, it, it's clearly hampered by its lack of budget in a number of areas. Um, there's some locations that don't look quite right. Some some of the kind of sets, the way it's been shot, don't look particularly great. Some of it looks a bit television-ish. A little unfortunate that it, it couldn't kind of up its game in those areas because I think a lot of the, the actual story, I'm, I'm, I'm more or less on board with. I'm, I'm kind of on board with how the characters treat each other and how the how they're portrayed. There's a lot of things that I, I, I like in here. It, it, it doesn't quite hang together as well as I hoped it would, given the kind of reception that it's had. Um, since it's remastered but I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's bad I didn't find it dull um, I found the characters interesting enough to more than kind of be on board with how they are and I think it's it's one of the ones that kind of again saying this film's about masculinity I don't quite get um, it's, it's more about how chauvinism affects females really but yeah, for all that, I didn't. I didn't mind it. I, I would. I would give it a. I would still recommend people g- give it a look, um, even if it is just for that historical curiosity value, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's if I counterpoint to say something like early Spike Lee, who's I mean, very different kind of energy to Spike Lee films, but he's looking at like a black working class in particular, mm-hmm. um, Bedford Stuyvesant, and this is very much middle class academic. Which is so different. So it's the same kind of period as early Spike Lee, yeah, but a very different in the same city as Spike Lee's working in, but a very different life to have a slice of. So it's interesting from that point of view. I just I don't think it's special, but I wonder if it might have been had it actually been seen more at the time, if it had been able to have more influence on people. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's perhaps the opportunity cost of this kind of vanishing into the memory hole for 30 years is what would this have inspired, what this has picked up and what could this have been improved on or uh, otherwise sparked off and had other other kind of effects on the landscape. And we won't know that because for some reason it just sat in a can for years for no appreciably good reason. I mean, even if you think this was not a great film, and I suppose you get back into the realms of his cinema art, or is it a business? And it's a bit of both. And I suppose this might not have had a particularly wide audience in most film executives' mind. I can I can kind of see why they would pass up on the opportunity of it, of it. but. It fits in very well with the kind of modern indie scene. Um, this is the sort of thing that um, you'd quite easily see being picked up as like the smaller scale indie releases when it would be a lot easier to make this film as well, um, just with the advances of technology and the, I mean, needing less staff to um, capture what's a, you know, fairly controllable scenes and all that stuff. We don't need a massive special effects budget or anything like that. So, um, curiously, this is the kind of film that would probably fit in better with the, the kind of current film landscape than it did with the landscape back in the 80s. 
so perhaps it feels a, a bit more contemporary in that regard. It is certainly not a film that I think was bad enough to have you know, like vanished into a hole for 30 years. I, I think it deserves a bit more respect than that, and it's, it's nice that this is now available for people to watch, and I'm sure there's a lot of you know, particularly black females and black females directors that would be you know overjoyed to see this and are happy that it's getting a, a wider uh, following. Yeah, but that sounds like... Because it like nobody really knows about it until now, then it it only has curiosity value. Yeah, it doesn't have importance. Then because I'm sure there were other people making films, maybe just that also never really saw the light of day. Yeah, that's um, true. I, I don't mean to dismiss it by that. I just think that having missed being released at the time, that it doesn't have the importance it may have done. Uh, and I don't think the film's bad. It's just I just didn't find it particularly interesting. And as I said, I'm frustrated by that because there are things in there. It could be really interesting, mm-hmm. but I wonder just how much I was taken out of or like predisposed from the very beginning because I hate that sort of saxophone <laughs> score so very much, Scott. I really don't like it. But it's, <laughs> what's crazy though is that it's really one of the reasons that it didn't get support was that basically no film executive knew any black professional women, basically. <laughs> Like they basically didn't think they existed. That's a great reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if that's just willful ignorance, or it's just some sort of prejudice or racism, or they're just purely idiots. But none of them are good reasons. Yes, there's very degrees of bad reason. Yes. Uh, I'm as shocked as you are to find that the film industry is occasionally ran by absolute idiots. Who would have predicted it? Also, just before we move on, Scott is like. Why the fortune teller scene? That stuck out to me. That seemed to not fit in with the rest of the film, unless I missed some meaning from that. But um, uh, It fits in because you've got a, a character who's been... Well, the way that it's phrased in the film, like, devoting her life to the rationality of all this kind of things, and she's struggling very much to find the kind of connection that... Um, that, well, the ecstasy that she talks about in her, her writing, the way that an artist finds ecstasy by performing the work and getting that out, which she's not been able to replicate by producing her educational works of philosophy. And so she's trying to seek the other ways that people do, either through spirituality, either through this or by the religion, because she goes to a church after this as well, I think. Uh, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's an attempt to try and connect in those regards, which doesn't quite work. Um, but I suppose that's the point of it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a scene that's not actually necessary. I think you could have got away quite enough just going with more of the religious angle, particularly given how that's spoken about, you know, in the text of it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's... It. To me, it made sense, but it's, it's not a particularly um, necessary scene, no. Uh, at I mean, least I would have accepted the religious part of it, but it's just, <laughs> I think, I tried to keep an open mind, but I, I just shut down completely when it yeah, comes to fortune tellers. It's nonsense. Yeah, as we, fortune tellers is a difference between keeping an open mind and like, letting your brain just fall out on the floor, so yeah. <laughs> right, so let's move on to, for the first time in this episode, but not the last, to France and Claire Diddy's Beau Travet. It's our 1989 film Good Work in English is, of course, capitalising on the immense success of the 1998 Jean-Claude Van Damme classic Legionnaire, which inspired a rash of imitators and a surging interest in the legendary French Foreign Legion. Here we are focused on Denis Levant's Galoup, second in command to Michel Subor's commander Bruno Forestier, in a squad stationed in Dibuti. While his commander is seemingly well-regarded and liked by and friendly with everyone in the squad, including Galoup, the same does not seem to hold true for Galoup. 
is that because of some character flaw in him or just a byproduct of him being the hard taskmaster and disciplinarian that is deemed essential to building the esprit de corps in the troops? After all, he seems to get on perfectly well with his local girlfriend and we are invited to ponder this. But the framing of this is set up as his recollections on a trip back to Paris for his court-martial, which perhaps hints at the answer. Indeed, things come to a head when the personable, beautiful young Giles Guido Centaine, played by Gregor Collin, is posted to the unit with a mysterious past that it seems that Centaine would rather be left hidden, which would not seem all that uncommon for the Foreign Legion. See the aforementioned 1998 Jean-Claude Van Damme classic Legionnaire. Uh, but Galou cannot <laughs> let this go and becomes obsessed with destroying Centaine, which will ultimately lead to Galou's downfall. I am, of course, nothing if not a ball of contradictions and hypocrisy, so while I'm sure there's ample evidence of me really disliking minimalist films that do not explicitly stake out what a character is thinking when they go off on their journey, unlike, for example, the 1998 Jean-Claude Van Damme classic Legionnaire, here I quite like not being able to fully get into Glue's head and not entirely trusting the things that he's saying that purports to explain himself. Those looks he gives a topless entain surely have a longing to them that's in no way connected to uncovering the truth, just plain old uncovering, right? A languidly paced film, which rather suits the baking sun and the rising tension as Galoo goes off the rails in the low-key way we become accustomed to him over the restrained 90-minute running time. And I suppose there's a case to be said that there's not, strictly speaking, a lot happening narratively to fill those 90 minutes. Thankfully, it's filled instead with some breathtaking visuals and a tremendous character performance from Denny Levant, who manages to remain captivating and mysterious throughout. I've not seen a lot of Claire Denis' body of work, but I'll have to rectify that going forward, and for those in a similar situation, Butreville gets my recommendation. Unlike the 1998 Jean-Claude Van Damme classic Legionnaire, which is in reality a bit crap. Yeah. Drew, if you're, if you're talking Jean-Claude Van Damme French Foreign Legion stuff, you want to watch AWOL, Scott, you watched the wrong one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought this film's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I've not, like you, I've not seen a lot of Claire Denis, but what I have seen, I've liked a great deal. Yeah. Yeah, this is fantastic. And Claire, what Claire Denis does really well is mood. Yes. And it's very much a film about mood, and it's fantastic. It's weird. It, again, this is only 90 minutes long, and it feels longer, but in a good way, in a kind of <laughs> trancy, kind of almost hypnotic way a lot of the time. Yeah. It's just the uh, the empty desert scenes, and that kind of desolation and emptiness in a film very often appeals to me. Yeah. It's... Yeah, there's a lot going on here, and this is definitely one of those films about masculinity. It's not yes, about yes. chauvinism yeah. or patriarchy. No, this is definitely masculinity, um, and all that entails uh, with these soldiers with, um, and because they're in such a hot place, very often not wearing a lot. So there's certainly a, a homoerotic. I was going to say subtext text, yes. I think, particularly <laughs> yeah. with Denis Laval. But again, it's. It's quite ambiguous as to quite what he's thinking because there may be longing there, but it may just be an irrational hatred. It may be because he's gone mad in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> that could happen. It could... Well, I mean, I think some of it is that it, it's resentment that he's taken... This new guy's taken some of the favour from Forrest, yeah? Like the... Yeah. The commandant, he kind of um, thinks that, well, he... he I'm, I'm his boy. He's I'm the one he likes, and he's like um, giving praise to this new guy. So there's a whole lot of things going on there. And what I really like, that's really interesting about this film. Now it's partly based on Billy Budd, and they use Benjamin Britten's music from Billy Budd as the score for it, mm. and which I didn't realise till afterwards. But what, but that very operatic score, I actually thought it worked really, really well because the actual 
acts that the any of the characters are doing are very small scale. Any grievances are really petty. Yeah. But when you're seeing this and you're seeing like these things getting to him for no good reason. Yeah. But the score that's playing over the top is this big operatic score. And I, I thought that was fantastic. It was just it just felt so clever because it's even though these these things are are nothing, they're inconsequential. In his mind, yeah, yeah, they're these huge operatic things that, that, that are of huge importance. They're clashing and um, big crescendos of emotion inside his head. Which so the fact that it's like the, that juxtaposition of the very minor things happening in the real world and this music indicating what's going on in his head, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really clever way to do it. Yeah, it's a great um, use of that kind of soundtrack as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's just a wonderful, wonderful mood film. I'm also not sure what else to add to what you've said, Scott. It's just, it's really, really good. I really, really enjoyed this film. It's kind of, I don't know, it, to repeat a word I used earlier, it's trance-like mm-hmm. when you're watching it. And there's a... A lot of different things you could unpack in it that all the stuff I've mentioned already. And I just think it's, it's extremely well crafted. And there's such a great mood created by the cinematography, the way the light and the location looks, and so much based on just Denis Lavon and particularly his facial expressions. Yeah. There's not a great deal of dialogue in it, which actually matches really well with the whole way that the French Foreign Legion is typically. Um, portrayed anyway, yeah. Because I mean, there's there are people there from North Africa. There are there's a Russian. There are people from all around the world, so not necessarily going to speak anyway. But they've yeah. gone to the foreign legion to forget their past, so they're not going to have a lot to speak about. Yeah. <laughs> and that actually that lends itself well to you. So you're trying to interpret facial expressions and get the motives and things that way without anybody spelling anything out to you. Yeah. So you have to. Yeah. Um, for as much as it's kind of it feels kind of languid at the same time your mind's working all the time and I appreciate that in a film yeah 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 definitely a high point uh, for me this uh, um, very highly recommended um, pleasant surprise I don't think I'd perhaps my fault I don't think I'd really heard of it checking it I don't think I've seen any of Claire Denis' other work at all I I don't even think I've seen Chocolat which was probably her her big calling card in her first film right um, I I keep thinking I I've one. seen that, but no, I've, I've not. Um, yeah, so. Don't don't confuse it with the Lassie Hallstrom Chocolat. It's not that one. No, I, I've definitely not seen Claire Denise one. Um, no. Um, just in case, yeah. it's not an uncommon name for, for yeah. a film, actually. Um, yeah. uh, it's not the one based on John Harris's book. No. So, yes, well, I'll definitely need to sort that out. Uh, yes, I will happily go and watch some more of her work and this was a very good introduction indeed and I heartily enjoyed it and recommend it to everybody Should we crash onwards to American Psycho then? Yes, let's In 2000, Lionsgate Films released this American Psycho, Mary Harron's most accomplished film I think her undisputed masterpiece A film so gory most people probably don't listen to the satire but they should because it's not just about the excesses of the 80s and the worshipping of material goods it's also a statement about the bankruptcy of our culture itself. <laughs> hey, Scott, try getting... Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. hi. <laughs> Can I just say, I see what you did there, and I'm here for it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I knew I, I have at least one person appreciated that. So that's worth it. 
What a disaster we narrowly avoided. Mary Harron's blackly comic horror satire of toxic masculinity could have starred Leonardo DiCaprio and been directed by Oliver Stone, with Stone desiring to excise all of the satire from Harron's script. Yikes. Fortunately, Canadian director Harron finally persuaded Lionsgate to let her make American Psycho, with her original choice of leading man, Christian Bale, as Patrick Bateman. Harron, due to being a woman, and not simply due to not being Oliver Stone... (laughs) Brings a take on Brett Easton Ellis's vapid, narcissistic protagonist considerably less enamoured of him than many male directors might be. Very possibly because, working in the film industry, she's dealt with more than a few Batemans in her time. Bateman, that titular psycho, tells us in voiceover that there's an idea of a Patrick Bateman, but that, in any real sense, he doesn't exist. And, Bill, he's right. He's not an individual. He's an identikit, interchangeable Wall Street douchebag, <laughs> regularly confused with any of a hundred other indistinguishable, Italian couture-wearing, business card fetishizing, image-obsessed, narcissistic waste of space. He drives all of his self-worth from the opinions of others, notably his mergers and acquisitions peers who, when they aren't measuring their little paper dick metaphors, are trying to one-up each other with who can obtain the most desirable dinner reservations. What does seem to set him apart is his penchant for casual, and sometimes more formally attired, murder. (laughs) Describing it as the only thing that makes him feel, having taken the idea of the cutthroat business world a little too literally. After offing one of his peers, Jared Leto's Paul Allen, Bateman is visited by Willem Dafoe's private detective, who's investigating the disappearance of Allen, and thus begins a downward spiral in which Bateman's bloodlust becomes ever more extreme and his carefully manicured appearance begins to crack. American Psycho, while it has considerably more substance than its main character, isn't the deepest of films, but it remains, 20 years later, hugely entertaining and Christian Bale's performance compelling and committed, managing to convince both in psychopathy and peevishness. And, amusingly, it's based on an interview Bale saw of Tom Cruise and Letterman, in which Cruise transmitted intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. (laughs) Its satire may not be the most biting or intellectual, but it's still, 20 years after release, timely. And the film is also regularly very funny. And we at Fuds and Film in particular will always be grateful to it for bringing us our pub quiz team name, Paul Allen's business card, <laughs> and our potential band name, Cat Adapter. <laughs> now, while Scott has his say, I'm just going to try getting a reservation at Dorsia. <laughs> yes, uh, this has been one of my favourite films for 20 years, and I see no reason to change that fact at this point. Um, yeah, heartily enjoyed revisiting this, even though it's another one of these films that I don't really need to watch again, because it's yeah. pretty much permanently tattooed in my brain. Um, yeah, just so many things to like in here. Um, it's just wonderfully committed performance. Um, Christian Bale's obviously a tremendous actor. I, I, I'm not sure I've liked him more than any role than this. Um, it's a terrific role. I cannot imagine trying to strip the satire from this. I I don't know if Oliver Stone's thinking was people don't seem to understand what satire is and don't get it anyway, so just take it out 
and save them the bother. Does that mean, does that mean <laughs> Oliver Stone doesn't understand what satire is, Scott? Well, most, is that what you're saying? And, and, and Oliver Stone doesn't understand a lot of things, witness JFK. Uh, but <laughs> look, um, he's... At some point, I watched American Psycho 2, um, which they made, and it has William Shatner in it, and is exactly as good as you would expect from those two facts, where it was basically claiming that everything that, you know, what Bateman does actually happened, rather than as a, a deviation of his... his uh, missed the entire point, is what American Psycho 2 yeah, did. Missed the entire point, and it's an absolutely abysmal film. Um, absolutely dreadful. And it's sort of... It's... Exactly what I expect a film that didn't have any satire to be made uh, if you took the, the American Psycho out of it. I mean, what's interesting about it is that Ellis's work um, is full of narcissistic um, sociopaths. And it, 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 they're not supposed to be likeable characters in it. And we've seen a few adaptations like Less Than Zero where they've tried to make some kind of... Comp- They've tinkered with it to try and make the characters in some way relatable or people you can get behind, but that's inherently not the point of his work. Um, you're not supposed to be identifying as Patrick Bateman as being a good guy who you would like to go out with. He's bad, obviously, yeah. because that's the point of it. And uh, I think American Psycho. Um, it's a more playful adaptation of it, I think, and that that works very well. Um, it is often very funny, uh, despite the kind of content matter of it. But it's always clear that this this not really the point of the work is not the violence. It's the point of it is the juxtaposition between that and the society that they find themselves in, which is where everything is so commoditized and irreplaceable, and where everything's an object, and the whole capital is milieu of this god-awful 80s neoliberal hellscape that we still find ourselves in, um, which somehow hasn't imploded yet, although it's not that far off it, surely. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm just kind of rambling now, but I just, I just like the film an awful lot. I think it's really great, and then you don't strip it from any kind of political context if you want to, strip it from any kind of social context if you want to, and it will still be a really funny, deeply engaging, and really well-made film that's hardly worth watching. Yeah. Yeah, although I, I wonder about people talking about stripping something from a political or social context. It kind of stops it being a film. Mm-hmm. Everything's political in some way or other. <laughs> so everything is made in the world where all of that stuff exists. But um, yeah. I think, yeah. thankfully, this one's a bit easier to kind of take um, without con- like. You know, all the all the people that watched um, Fight Club and took entirely the wrong ideas from it, which is another interesting film about masculinity and how we could talk for all day fucked everything up but yeah it would be very difficult i think to watch american psycho and take the wrong message from it which um, i think is 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 something to be proud of uh yeah um yeah terrific achievement i love it i love it yeah i think um uh, people misunderstand Brett east analysis work a lot i think as you said and like the people like patrick bateman are, are are not supposed to be like well they're supposed to be ridiculous um the caricatures really yeah. They're over the top. The violence is exaggerated. His desires are exaggerated because it's a satire very often, um, in very many cases. And I think this film does a pretty good job of of getting a lot of the um, sense of the book. And it's different in a lot of ways. And the book's a bit more ambiguous about whether anything yeah, happened, true. whereas you know, the film, it quite clearly didn't. Yeah. And <laughs> it, that the fact that American Psycho Two exists is just it's so weird because like <laughs> it didn't happen, none of it happened. The whole point of the film is that none of it happens. 
I mean, there's one minor bit of ambiguity at the end in that because they're also interchangeable, maybe the lawyer didn't actually have lunch with Paul Allen. <laughs> yes, I suppose right? that's true, yeah. Um, but everything else, like the fact that he's not arrested and that there was no story in the New York Times about the fact that that was a murder apartment that he went to visit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've sort of set myself on a tangent. Um, I'll, I'll just pretend I've got a really clever linking device to go back to what I said, though, which is just, um, ah, no, just, I was thinking about the fact that it's actually a really good adaptation of the book. In line with most authors, who can be quite tiresome, Ellis himself has said oh, yeah. that he thinks American Psycho was a a book that didn't think need to be turned to movie. Took the bloody money for it though, didn't you? <laughs> you can't take the money to auction your book to make a film and say, well, I don't think it needed to be made. <laughs> you take that money, you don't have a say anymore. Yes. <laughs> what this film, I mean, it's, it's only tangentially connected really, but just because you, in particular, because you mentioned Less Than Zero, Scott, I'm kind of tempted to go back and watch Rules of Attraction again now. Yeah. I, I don't think that was particularly successful and didn't that have... Um, Dawson's Creek in it. it. It did to my memory, but yeah. Uh, other than but, it being a film that exists, I can remember almost nothing of it. So, well, that's yes. uh, I just um, I think Patrick Bateman is. I believe it's his, his maybe a cameo. brother. It's his younger brother, isn't it? Is, yeah, is, he is. And I, I, rec- I recall the book has a Patrick Bateman cameo. I don't think the film did, if I recall, because I'm I'm pretty sure I reviewed it, but I can't remember anything about it. So, yeah. yes, I think I remember that that Dawson's Creek was a particularly odious and unlikable person. So you know that fits him with all best Betty Snell and stuff. Yes, that'll work. Yeah, I don't think he was quite so charismatic as Christine Bale in this, but yeah. few people ever have been. <laughs> yes. Feed me a stray cat. <laughs> right, um, a stray cat may have been about the only thing the people in the next film didn't eat, Scott. Because they ate everything else. Yes, you're speaking of Marie Antoinette. Sophia Coppola was riding high off the critical successes of The Virgin Suicides and especially Lost in the Translation, but I think it's fair to say that Marie Antoinette was at best divisive, perhaps more accurately panned, on its release back in 2K6. And while my ear is not close to the ground for this sort of thing, I don't think there's been a great deal of clamouring for a reappraisal in Space Corona Year 2K20. Uh, But as I was uh, put off entirely by its reception first time around, let's see what a fresh pair of eyes in the situation can see. Um, unsurprisingly enough, this is a tale of Kirsten Dunst's Mary Antoinette, Archduchess of Austria that was betrothed at age 14 to Jason Schwartzman's Louis Auguste, heir apparent to the French throne and ultimately King Louis XVI, once Riptorn's Louis XV pops the clogs. Yes, that Riptorn. No, I didn't think so either. While I'm sure there were some examples in antiquity of a queen being the power behind the throne, even disregarding the more obvious cases of being the power on the throne, uh, there appears to be little evidence that Marie's talents lay in that direction, uh, expected more to be a symbol of cementing relations between Austria and France and delivering a heir to the throne. And despite some iconoclastic filmmaking choices, Marie Antoinette, the film, does not seek to deviate much from the accepted events of Marie Antoinette, the historical figure, but is much more concerned with the pressure placed on her shoulders uh, to consummate the marriage a cementing of relations both personal and physical with the Dauphin, despite his seeming indifference or reluctance, and also the relationship with the French courts and public, both broadly going from warm to awful as her profligate spending puts an increasing hurt on the public purse. 
There's a line I stumbled across on Rotten Tomatoes from the independence Anthony Quinn. Uh, Marie Antoinette is about confinement in a gilded cage and perversely or not shows itself far more interested in the cage than the prisoner, which is a great line, but I think entirely incorrect. Um, sure, it's not a film that's shying away from the ridiculous opulence that Marie finds herself in, but the embrace of that as a coping mechanism is surely one of the driving character points of the film, and indeed a part of the public relations missteps that ultimately led to her final height being one f- <laughs> sorry, to her final one-foot height reduction procedure, or more accurately, one head. Although the war thing probably didn't help either. I think this was perhaps the time of peak Kirsten Dunst, and frankly I'm a little bit bummed that she's either chosen to or been forced to take a bit of a back seat since uh, throughout the 2010s, because I think she's doing a great job of bringing humanity and vulnerability to the character, while at the same time trying to keep up the facade of royal infallibility. Uh, where the character development, and indeed the film, suffers a bit is that due to the 18th century logistical constraints, there's a bunch of info dumps and ultimatums delivered by mail and voiceover that would have been dramatically speaking, much better if it could have been done face-to-face. But that would, I suppose, be taking too much of liberty with the truth of Mary's life, which uh, to which this shoe is quite close. Sure, there's some contemporary music thrown in at the audience to indicate mood at times, but it's not like it's diegetic or anything, so I'm surprised to find myself okay with it. It ties in with a sense of fun that pervades a good deal of Marie Antoinette. If, however, you're looking for real in-depth looks at her character, then this doesn't deliver it. It's a bit too coy and mysterious, perhaps borrowing a little bit too closely from Lost in Translation's playbook, which I can see some finding frustrating. Ultimately, it's more of an artist's abstract impression of Marie's personality than it is a recounting of her entire life, and I think I'm largely on board with that. There's plenty of histories available for the facts and numbers, but as a broad encapsulation of her feelings, this is hard to argue with. I can see why it's divisive, but overall I rather enjoyed Marie Antoinette, and even if at parts it's veering dangerously close to being the sugary confections that it so lovingly portrays. Yeah, what did you make of it? I really enjoyed this. I had no conceptions coming in at all. Um... I was aware of this film, but I'd never really connected it with any like feeling about it or anything. Mm. It was like vaguely where some point in this film existed and I'd never watched it. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I'll admit in the, the second half of the film, I found myself thinking a few times, well, what's the point of this? Mm. What's it saying exactly? <laughs> but I, I wasn't exactly not enjoying it. And, and the first half I really enjoyed and there were a few like, really nice touches I thought just worked really well with the character. And, I mean, you can't excuse a lot of the things that she and the court did, um, the way they basically bankrupted the country. Um, and a lot of people mm. had no food um, and no jobs and things because of the way that the, the royal court was spending it. But at the same time, you can't, the way this is set, like, and like Versailles, um, it's quite a wee bit outside Paris, and so it's not like today when you would just like hop in the car. I'm not suggesting people think there are cars in the 18th century, Scott, <laughs> but like, it's actually it's an undertaking to go to Paris, even though it, by today's standards it would feel very close. It really is. She is in a bubble, and a very weird and lavish bubble. Yes. <laughs> so to a degree. You can excuse her ignorance of everything else that's going on or misunderstanding of it because the way she lives, there is no way she can possibly get what's going on. <laughs> She's so isolated and it's such rarefied air. And I think the film actually does a really good job of showing that. With yeah, yeah. So you just, you just watch and you go, oh, all right. Yeah, yeah, get that. <laughs> and likewise, I, I always wondered when I've heard reports of 
like the the huge sums that the court of Versailles spent, and I and I've like so often wondered like how how are they spending that much? And then I watched this film. And I was like, you know, for the first time, like I, I'm really getting it. Yeah. <laughs> Assuming that there's any accuracy to this, right? Mm. Is that the first time that Jason Schwartz and the Kirsten Dunst are sitting down to breakfast together, and there are forty people standing around in the room with them. And when she's getting dressed, like 30 people dressing her. Like, all of those people have to be paid for. Suddenly I'm realising, even just from this breakfast scene, yes, like wh- where this profligate spending comes from. Um, and then that carries on through the whole film. It's kind of ridiculous at the end when there's literally a mob at the door and they still have this table full of ridiculously expensive, very carefully presented food. Yeah. <laughs> Enough for like, what? 40 to 50 people and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's uh, yeah. and actually quite like so there's, there's there's quite a few scenes where I think Sophia Coppola's done a really great job of just of just letting the, the situation ridicule itself Yeah, no character has to make a comment you just, you just see this food and all the hangers on wait and the camera's just like sit there and then you're just like yeah mm. this is daft yeah. these people are idiots <laughs> I don't know whether it's perhaps just because of his stature, but I think Jason Schwartzman works really well as Louis Auguste because, you know, he was basically a wee boy. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, interested in wee boy things, like his, his obsession with locks and things. Yeah. And that works. And again, another thing this film does well too, because it doesn't need, it doesn't go like particularly heavy handed on a lot of stuff. It's like, I, I always knew that Marie Antoinette was young when she was married to the Dauphin. And I'd forgotten exactly how. But I think this film spells it quite well. So you see she's sent to France, and you get the idea she's out of her place and doesn't really know what she's doing. Mm-hmm. But unless I missed it, I don't think her age is actually mentioned at the start. And then she goes to Versailles. She has the marriage. She goes to, She's clearly been there for years and stuff, right? Yeah. And then a third to halfway through the film she's having a birthday party and it kind of um, kicks you in the guts when they say happy 18th birthday yeah. Like, oh, yeah 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 wow yeah so um, while she had a, an easier life in many ways than other people it does the film does a good job of showing just like, like how terrible things are people still suffer even in that situation or yeah. the, the pressure she was having the, the her age the the pressure to have a child and all was like the fact that you no know, potentially um, an entire country's future hinged on um, things like that, which is because you know royalty is really, really, really stupid and a monarchy is a terrible idea. Yeah, so it's an incredibly weird situation, but you're right. It did a tremendous job of building up a lot of sympathy for a character who, yeah, obviously is living in the most ridiculous luxury you can possibly imagine, but at the same time she's not really a person. What what say has she had in anything that's happened to her? Uh, up until the point that she's actually married and can sort of get the purse strings a little bit in her favour, but yeah, she's been she's been essentially sold off to another family to, to ensure peace, and yeah. and and, is, and her her primary purpose is to pump out babies. It's like that's that's a horrible dehumanising way to live, and even uh, does having all the money in the world sort of compensate for not really being a person. It's um, I thought did a really great job of um, building up some sympathy for a character who would not normally be engendering a lot of sympathy in an audience. Yeah, so like the institution of monarchy 
and the way the um, absolute monarchy, in particular that France had. Mm. Yeah, you can see why you get rid of that, but and why that's to blame. But I don't think to a degree anyway you can actually blame the individuals and I think the film does a really good job of showing that yeah yeah because what choice does this person have um she was a scapegoat basically yeah um, in many ways and like there are some or there have been some kings you know who actually the kind of killing lots of people type uh looking for instance at the last two Russian czars yeah they were terrible people either through ignorance or actual maliciousness like murdering people and thinking that people wouldn't think that was a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's none of that here. Uh, the institution's bad, so it gives you quite a lot of sympathy for the cards because, yeah, they're commodities. It makes me think a bit of the woman at Wolf Hall, Hilary Mantel. Mm. She was criticised, but it, it kind of struck me as quite a, uh, an astute comment when William Windsor married Kate Middleton. I refused to call him by the first names. I don't know them, and I hate that. But, um, <laughs> those people... <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II's grandchildren, or grandchildren, she, Hilary Mantel described her basically um, as a white, clean, plastic sex doll because <laughs> her role was to is to have children. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like being, that's been going on for a long time, so you take care of some sympathy for that. Yeah, have children um, with the entire nation watching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very entertaining film. I had no problem with the... It's the non-contemporary soundtrack, and I don't understand why people were bothered by that. Yeah, it's not the first time that's been done, and it it was fine. It's so it, it was effective because it was just like it's like clearly this is a stylistic choice. I thought it worked quite well. Yeah, me too. What's your problem? <laughs> yeah, uh, the other thing is, I think by the, I mean not so much the end, but uh, kind of how would you divide this? Probably the fourth, fifth of this film <laughs> thought it'd become a little bit meandering. They probably spent too long in the the model village that Marie Antoinette had built at uh, yeah. Versailles. It's like you, you, when you see how fake it is, and the fact that somebody's washing the eggs first or before the princess picks them up and stuff. Yeah, uh, it's been a bit too long there. Uh, to be honest, though, it's a really nice place. So again, I wonder if they just got carried away because the fact they had incredible access to Versailles in the grounds yeah. which are ludicrously big <laughs> and it's a beautiful place and that little model village is really enchanting <laughs> so I kind of wonder they just got lost because they had the access to film there but it gets a bit meandery before the revolution starts Yeah, I, I did um, think it maybe chickened out a little bit by not showing the rest of it um, by not showing the, the kind of aftermath of the revolution and how the how it, I don't know how much it would have been her decision, but of course there was the kind of war to try and get the back in the throne, how that failed, and how ultimately she was executed. I mean, there's a lot of the story that is left not touched in Marie Antoinette. Um, her life definitely did not end at the point that this film ends. Um, whether that would just be too much of a downer for the rest of the film, I don't know. But I think, uh, yeah. Um, uh, but I think you're right. It, it does sort of meander out around a little bit at the end. It doesn't quite get to to where it should do with um, telling the rest of our story. I think. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed. It. I thought Kirsten Dunst was great. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a show. I think since then, the only films I've seen her, she's got a fairly minor role as horrible, bitchy, racist boss in Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. and she's in Melancholia. The less said about which, the better. Yeah. Um, Not done much since. Uh, I had a quick look at her 
uh, filmography since I'm not sure what she's been doing or if she's maybe I don't know stage acting I'm not sure but yeah she's certainly not been in many films and I think that's to a great loss of um, films whether that it's probably just that there's not the role um, roles available for her she's got the same um, you've now you've now got so old you can't prove play um, teenagers anymore so uh, we'll see you again when you're 60 maybe, uh, when you can get some roles for older people, and that's it, there's nowhere in between for Hollywood, so yeah Yeah, I mean, she may have been raising a family or something as well yeah, I, I don't know, I, yeah. I don't follow that sort of thing but yeah, there's um, that happens a lot yeah. in Hollywood unfortunately for women, but um, yeah, it's just so it's a pity because I thought she was really good in this, really yeah. like her, really sympathetic. Yeah. And the film itself, it gets a bit meandering at points, and a few points like, yeah, I'm not quite sure what you're saying, Sophia, but it just it looks amazing. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, you can film something at uh, Versailles and have it not look amazing, but the just it is one of the most colourful films I think I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite astonishing how colourful the film is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost technicolour without actually being technicolour. Yeah, yeah um, all the the clothing and the food and especially the food and the confections and things, but it's just, it's a riot of colour. It's a, visually, a very visually appealing film, even if, you know, a lot of Versailles itself is just, it's so gaudy and over the top. Yeah. That was very much the style then, but... Yeah, this is. I don't quite get why this was so pillowed at the time. Yeah, yeah, uh, it puzzles me as well. I, I don't see anything in here to really hate. Um, it's confusing that it got the reception that it did. I don't know if there's just the time for Sophia Coppola to be taken down a peg in people's estimation. It's like, oh, you've done, you've done too many good films, so you're a woman, so let's uh, chop your legs off a bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I heartily recommend it. Me too. Shall we round things off with a look at Tomboy? Yes. Celine Shama's Tomboy follows one summer in the life of a 10-year-old child, Zoe Aran, who has just moved to a new home, along with dad, mum, little sister and soon-to-arrive baby brother. Venturing out to play with the other local children, this newcomer is introduced by just-met neighbour Lisa as Mikkel, the new boy from Building C. Now, this introduction might surprise the family at home because they know Mikkel as Laura, their eldest daughter. As Mikkel, Laura is able to join in the games of football from which Lisa is excluded and is determined to pass his mail amongst her new friends, even going so far as creating an appropriate protuberance in the swimming suit area <laughs> from Play-Doh. Eventually, Laura's younger sister Jeanne, Malone Levana, discovers the dual identity, but in sibling solidarity plays along. As the summer progresses, Mikkel and Lisa's friendship progresses to that of childhood... Romance may be the best word, but awkward questions arise about the absence of Mikkel's name on the new school class lists, and the problems of the end of the summer begin to loom large. Mikkel's identity, as Laura has discovered, to the shock of Lisa and Laura's mother in particular, though I won't reveal how. In perhaps the most crushing scene of the film, Laura's mother says that, I'm not even sad, as if that would have been an acceptable response to discovering something so important about her child. Tomboy is a beautiful, gentle, warm and tender film with an excellent performance from Zoe Aran and natural, simple and believable interaction between the children. The situations in it could be read in many ways. Mikhail Lor's kiss with Lisa may be a sign of attraction to women or it may be seen simply as a measure of success at playing male. Mikhail could be a transgender boy 
or it could be a girl just trying something out or perhaps something else perhaps even the characters don't know it's ambiguous and therein lies its genius it's a very very rewarding watch Yes, yes, I did, it turns out, watch this back in 2011 at the Edinburgh Film Festival, and I I very much enjoyed it then, looking back at my notes, and I enjoy it just as much now. Um, Agree with what you're saying there, it's uh, something that's not being um, particularly authoritarian in its uh, interpretation uh, of what's happening and the events that happen, it's just letting them play out in a really wonderful uh, way. Yes, and it's got these lovely naturalistic performances that play out really nicely. The, as you say, the, the, the interaction between the kids is never less than absolutely charming. Uh, such a sweet film in that regard. Um, the, the way that the their actions happen after um, Michelle or Laura's deception is kind of uncovered um, is in a way heartbreaking um, but another way kind of entirely justified depending on what kind of ones you're looking at it um, it's it, it's just all very sensitively told it doesn't feel like it's exploiting anything um, it just feels like a really nice story and what could be um, I, I have no idea if this is um, remotely drawn from anyone's life in particular from either the writers or directors but it, it just feels like a, a nice tale um, it doesn't really try to force any agendas onto anything that's happening it's just showing a, a interesting kind of moment in the not quite coming of age but kind of the exploration of that identity and what it means to be female what it means to be male and these kind of questions that I'm sure are cycling around everyone's brain when they're a kid um, they have to be very either very sure of yourself or very boring or very unimaginative if you don't at least at one point in your life thought, wonder what it would be like if I was the opposite sex or something like that. And that's really just taking that ball and uh, playing, uh, running with it. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. a really entertaining, charming, sweet, and at many points sad uh, and thought-provoking film. Um, Heartily recommend this one too. Um, if you didn't catch it in 2011, I'm not sure many people did. Um, but yeah, you, you definitely should make amends when uh, catch up with that now. It's really nice. Yeah, it's just it's such a lovely film. It, it's so it's so tender with its subjects. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and as I said, there, there's so many interpretations you could have, and, and they're all valid. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, a lot of art has a lot of interpretations, and really, the whole point of art is that any of them could reasonably be valid but um, this film isn't prescriptive at all yeah yeah. and because um, it could be something as simple here as like it's called Tomboy but maybe just Laura just doesn't like the idea that um, the girls maybe are not being allowed to play football because that's a thing that happens here yeah maybe yeah. that's enough yeah right? or maybe it, it's something else and what I like is that the, the director said um, I made it with several layers so that a transsexual person can say that was my childhood and so that a heterosexual woman could also say it. Yeah. Um, so there's just... Because, like, the whole... Um, <laughs> the whole human experience um, is very varied. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's just... This is just a film... It's, like, it's a sweet film about children and, like, it's so innocent in many ways as well and it's really the only bit where it becomes unpleasant like that is it's the adult world yeah <laughs> coming in and like you can see this horrible looming thing of what happens when school starts coming yeah and a 10 year old's not going to think about that yeah <laughs> it's like that that's tomorrow we'll put it off 
put it off and put it off and put it off and hope that somehow it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas our mother clearly feels that she needs to take some action because maybe she's not set up to deal with it. Certainly the school systems and society in general, for the most part, not set up for that. Yeah, um, um, and, and in particular it's because, well, she knows that this, what Michelle or Laura's plan is, is not going to escape contact with school, right? It's going to get yeah. it's going to get found out then, so you better get ahead of that in some way. Um, it's not coming from any kind of place of, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so offended that this girl thinks she's a boy. It's more that, well, this is going to come to a head, better get in front of it rather than just let it happen at school, which, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, even in that regard, a- it's not it's not being done out of a sense of malice or intolerance. It's just, well, better deal with this, I suppose. And that seems to be the only way to do it. There's a touch of that in there with that, that line I mentioned, which is where the mother says, you know, I'm not even sad, which suggests that, That's true, yeah. you know, she should be like, that it's she's sad that a little girl doesn't want to be a girl or it's an acting girlishly or anything but um, it's, that's only the one, only one line in the whole film and yes for the rest of it it's almost like yeah this is going to be really awkward children can be very evil <laughs> you know so this could actually make things really bad for um, let's just you know get out ahead of us as you say Scott but yeah it's just it's such a such a sweet film mm-hmm. And it's just, it's really heartwarming as well. Yes. It's not a film that's like pushing an agenda of a nonsense people talk about. It's just like, here's a, here's a kid. This is probably representative of many, many kids over the years. And it's just treated... Humanely. Very kindly. Yeah. Humanly, yeah. Absolutely. It's a very humane film. So another one very highly recommended. Yes. Not a bad hit rate for a change. We should do more of this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there wasn't a bad film in this. Yes. One film I didn't particularly like, but that, that was it. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's nice. No, there's no hereditary in here. Yeah. <laughs> right, uh, so that will wrap us up for today. Thank you very much for your attention. If you would like to get in touch with us for the issues raised here or for any other particular reason, then do so on Twitter at FuzzonFilm, Facebook at facebook.com slash FuzzonFilm, or through the old emails at podcast at FuzzonFilm.com. But until next time, I shall be you, you, and I'm sure that my good buddy shall do, shall do, do. I still